Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A couple of weeks ago, Scott Shea and I spent some time talking about his new book. It is a, a great read. It is called All the Leaves Are Brown, How the Mamas and the Papas Came Together and Broke Apart. It's available wherever you can find books. It is available today, June 1st. So when we were recording a few weeks ago, uh, he was talking about it being available, but I wanted this episode to come out today. Please check it out, uh, and I think you're going to love it. It's a great story. All right, and here's Scott Nye's discussion. So I started writing an autobiography on John Phillips, and then I just got so overtaken by the story of the mamas and the papas, the four of them. The four of them have interesting stories separately and together. And so I, after a while, I just, I got about 20 chapters in. I was like, this should just be a Mamas and the Papas biography, or else this is just going to be 50 chapters long on John Phillips. That's the, that's the story of how I, how I came to write about him. Them, I should say. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Set Lusting Bruce, your podcast all about Bruce Springsteen, his music, and mostly his fans. I am your host, Jesse Jackson. We are getting off the Bruce train, and I guess we are taking a walk on a winter's day, even though it's April as we're recording this. My new friend, Scott Shea, is joining me. And we're going to talk a little bit about the mamas and the papas. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thank you, Jesse. I appreciate the invite. appreciate being here. It's my first interview for this book. Hey, I'm honored you would have me. No, I am very excited. We're going to get to, you shared a little bit before we hit record about how this started as one project and morphed into another. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, I always like this. Tell us a little about yourself. Just give us your elevator pitch. <laughs> I'm a producer at Sirius XM. I've been producing at the Catholic Channel since 2012. I've been at I've, I've been at the I've been producing Seize the Day with Gus Lloyd at the Catholic Channel since 2012. Been there since 2011. Been at Sirius XM since 2007. Uh, before that, I was on uh, Raw Dog Comedy and the Foxhole, mostly as a sound engineer. Then I became a producer for Road Dog Trucking and, and then uh, been at the Catholic Channel ever since. I wrote a book called the, All the Leaves Are Brown, How the Mamas and the Papas Came Together and Broke Apart. And it's due out on Backbeat Books on June 1st. I'm very excited. Yeah, I will probably work this out where I'll release this right before it goes out. Oh, so that it much. gets the, yeah, so that way. My we publicist will thank you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, you were nice enough to send me an advanced copy. I am going through it. I had shared with you, I've reached a point where not all the players have gotten together, but a couple of the main players have at least met and started working right. together. And we're going to get in the book in a minute, but I always like to start at the beginning. Scott, talk to me. Where did you grow up and what kind of music did your family listen to? I grew up in a little town in New Jersey 
called Nishanik Station. It's in Somerset County. It's about an hour northwest from Freehold, New Jersey. Which oh, I know that which, name. Yes. <laughs> which I'm sure your listeners know. That's the hometown of Bruce Springsteen. My family is a family that love music. We didn't really play it. I have members in my family. My mother was, my grandmother was a great pianist. And my, my uncle was a great guitarist. And my brother plays guitar. But he didn't really start that until he got into his later teen years. But we loved listening to the radio. We, from my mother, we listened to the contemporary Top 40 at the time, which would have been out of New York, WPLJ and Z100 with Z Morning Zoo and Scott Shannon, and Jim Kerr at the, at the PLJ. And then for my father, we listened to the oldies. And that was primarily WCBS-FM in New York, which had all the DJs that he and my mom listened to when they were teenagers, like Cousin Brucie and Dan Ingram and Ron Lundy and Harry Harrison. And they spun that great old rhythm and blues and doo-wop and rock and roll from the 50s and the 60s and had a profound effect on me. That was our, that that was, uh, we were kind of, we were all over the map, but it was all, it was, you know, it was uh, stuff that, pe- you know, you know, people in our area, in our circle listened to. Did as you started growing into teenage, high school, college, did you did you rebel against your mom and dad's music? Did you just expand your horizons and take <laughs> on other things? Oh, I was the I soaked it up. I love my parents' record collection. I would invade it. I took it over. They had everything. They had the Beatles, they had the Everly Brothers. They had oldies but goodies record sets. They had uh, Sam Cooke and Roy Orbison. A lot of stuff that Bruce was a fan of, and you know what, which I would find out later. And uh, no, no, it was all done for me. It's just a great unifying force. I was never a rebellious kind of person. I still am not really. Occasionally, <laughs> but I loved music, and I just I gravitated to their record collection, and and it complemented. I, I was. In with what was going on the radio, watching MTV. This is, we're talking early to mid 80s here in New Jersey. There's just great, New Jersey, just when you're in between New York and Philadelphia, you're just surrounded with great music. Absolutely. Since this is Set Lusting Bruce, talk to me a little bit about your Bruce experience growing up in the <laughs> early 80s in Jersey. He had to be everywhere. Oh, he was. For me, it, I was about eight years old when Dancing in the Dark came out and that song was just everywhere it was my first real exposure but i had heard him before i know my dad had he had a cassette copy of the river in nebraska and i distinctly remember sherry darling because i remember the like it sounded like it was at a party yes and then hungry heart which was a big hit i remember hearing that on the radio a lot and then atlantic city which which i loved that song from the first moment i heard it the summer of 84 and 85 i remember going down to the jersey shore that's the way you say it, of course, if you're from Jersey. And it's uh, Born in the USA was everywhere. There were, what do you have, seven singles off that album, which is just, it's funny because I think, not to go on, in a rap, uh, down a rabbit trail here, but I remember reading Bruce said Landau heard the album and said, where's the lead off single? And so he made him write, much like the record company had done in 73 with Blinded by the Light, made him go and write a hit single, which, you know, which was Dancing in the Dark, which he did under duress, under protest. And then the six other hit singles. What did John not hear? Yeah, that is a great point. And we've thought about that. Sometimes I've had buddies talk about what if Born in the USA, he had stuck with the blues version, right? He hadn't Mm -hmm. done that rock anthem. Would it had, and let's say Dancing in the Dark wasn't added, would it have just been a good, would he have had yeah. a Neil Young career, which is nothing to sneeze at, right? right. Yeah. Like, oh, I get what yeah. you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's, first of all, I love the full man version of Born in the USA best. But had he, let's say he let, even, let's say he let off with that or yeah. Glory Days, it might not have, it might not have had the snowball effect that, yeah. that, it, that Dancing in the Dark gave. Dancing in the Dark was such a catchy, just a tune that just, it just puts you in a good frame of mind a good just a great and then just that video where he's on and it just that just complimented it where he's out there i know he doesn't like the way he's dancing but i remember looking at it thinking how cool he was yes exactly (laughs) oh man he's kind of he was kind of like our elvis i've talked to my father-in-law is a a first generation bruce springsteen fan like he was there from the beginning he loves the first three albums after that he's not so crazy but he still likes it yeah and so Dance, dancing in the Dark did nothing to him. And I had to explain to him, Dancing in the Dark was my generation's Born to Run. 
And it yes. was, you know, it, it brought him a whole new generation of fans. It gave his career at, at least 10 more years, if not more. And it, it got, and it was a bigger hit than Born, Born to Run, quite frankly. It was as big, I think it's still his biggest hit to date, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken. I believe so. I think it got to number two because Prince kept him <clears throat> from hitting number one, which was so funny that him, Prince, Madonna, and Michael Jackson owned the 80s in so yeah, many ways. For real. Uh, yeah, I, I I do think that is, it is the, I think it's what ifs. And that's the whole, that's why there's a whole industry of what if fantasy and science fiction. You change one thing, right, yeah. you change another. And you wonder if he had done that, what where it would be. He, it seems to me, and that and based on reading his autobiography, it does seem like after Born in the USA went crazy, he specifically, oh, let's throw this fire down a little bit. Let's, I'm going to do Tunnel of Love. I'm going to do things a little yeah. different mm-hmm. just because of what he's doing. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So you mentioned working at XM. Growing up, did you always know you wanted to be in that side of the entertainment business to be not necessarily in front of the mic, but on the other side? I knew I always wanted to be in radio. I always thought okay. it would be on the other side, on the talent side of the mic, okay. I should say. But I didn't think it was going to be behind the scenes. But when I got into radio, that was where I felt the most comfortable. And yeah, I've done demos and stuff, and I just didn't like the way I sound. I like I liked helping people sound better. And I think I do that better than I do being in front of the mic. Not that I could, and I'm sure I probably could. I've had people tell yeah. me that, but I've always wanted to be in radio and I fought it for a long time. I went to college and just got got a regular job and, and had a career in sales for a while. It just didn't pan out. And then I got fired from a sales job right after, right after my, our first, our, my wife and I had our first child. 
And it was like, oh boy. <laughs> you know, so like, let me follow my pursuit in radio. I've always wanted to. Up by us, there was a place that's still around. It was called the Connecticut School of Broadcasting. It was advertised all over the place. And I was like, let me try. It was like a six-week course. And they got placed in an internship. I, I started my first internship. I started at a place called WDHA, working out on the morning show there. And then I got a second internship. Uh, and that was at Sirius XM. And I've been there. That was back in 2007, the spring, fall of 2007. I've been there ever since. And that's just the way it's worked out for me. <laughs> and I'm happy with it. The How did you end up on the Catholic Channel? I am Catholic. And I am, I'm, I'm a practicing Catholic. So there's a delineation there. Yes. Uh, and there, there was, it was... It's one of those things, Jesse, where, you know, it's like when I went, when I took an internship or no, when I got first got my off, there was so many interns at Sirius. They wanted to work at either the Howard Stern show or in sports. And those are really there's a lot of competition in there. Not that I'm afraid of competition, but I was like, I was in my early thirties at the time with a wife and a son, and I had to be a little bit more pragmatic. So I was like, what's the best route in? I was offered a spot on the Road Dog Trucking Channel. There aren't a lot of interns clamoring to be on the Road Dog Trucking Channel, but it was a very popular channel for geared specifically to truck drivers. It's still around. Truck drivers, especially now, but especially back in those days, which is the early days of Sirius, were the backbone of, of our listenership. You know, they, they, it's Sirius XM was geared perfectly towards them because it, they were able to drive from, especially these over the road truck drivers, they were able to drive coast to coast or state to state and never lose signal and have their, have just an absolute major, majority of, of different types of programming to choose from, from music to talk and everything in between. I'm here in Dallas, the DFW area, right? And WBAP <clears throat> was one of those AM stations that had a massive signal that a lot of people would right. catch. But yeah, that is the beauty of Sirius XN. And I can imagine my 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 brother was a truck driver and we talked about that having that now nowadays it's easier to do books on tape and do podcasts mm -hmm. and everything. Right. But back then it is much tougher to okay, am I gonna listen oh, yeah. to static or am I gonna listen to some music? And the great thing about Sirius XM is when you get into it it's hard to just to leave it because there's so much different types of programming it's the only place where you're going to hear 50s and 60s music still on the radio you're not going to hear that yeah. on am fm you're not going to hear elvis yeah you got an entire channel devoted to bruce springsteen you got an entire channel devoted to pearl jam or jimmy buffett and grateful dead and and just you got serious or deep tracks which i'm a big fan of of late 60s early 70s fm radio air checks yeah. from like san francisco like ksan and they're it's like that where it's just you know, they're just playing deep album tracks over and over again and i really from really the 60s and the 70s and i love it so i got the job with road dog trucking and i was able to build up my career there I got a producer job fairly quickly it was an overnight show so I worked, our show was from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. And we're talking to truck drivers. It was called Jonesy's All Night Truck Stop. It's not on the air anymore. Shout out to Glenn Jones, who big Bruce fan, who, who was the host then. But uh, I was approached. I had, I always joke, after about two years on that channel, I finally got my annual review. <laughs> and I was talking with my boss at the time. And I said, if there's ever any openings up the Catholic channel, I'm, I'm very involved in the faith and the history of it. And it's, it's a deep history and all the intricacies therein and and there aren't too many people in Sirius XM saying that hey yes, if there's ever a job at the Catholic Channel let me know finally one opened up and she contacted me and I was able to transition to working at normal hours again and see my family and then I worked on uh, the Catholic guy with Lena Rooley for about for a little less than a year and then the morning show slot opened up seize the day with Gus Lloyd and I've been there ever since that's been 11 years now I've been producing that show that is very cool. How early do you get up for the what what time does this show kick off and how early do you get up? His show starts at 730. I used to have to get up at 330 in the morning to get or no, at 230 in the morning to get to New York. But I've been working from home since COVID and we've gone completely remote. We're not going back because they gave us all the equipment we need and everybody's much more productive and happier than that. So now I get up at six. So it's not so That's bad. Not bad at all. <laughs> yeah. My the morning show here in Dallas that I listen to as a ticket, they start at 5.30 and Fernando, who's their producer, talks about that he almost doesn't go to bed. He just, he gets, 
because of all the things he wants to do, he just yeah. gets in very early. And then when the show's over at 10, he goes, he says, it's almost like working overnight. Oh, for real. Yeah. Because, you yeah. Know, yeah. I would get up at two, three, I'd have to go, I get, I would get home at three o'clock in the afternoon, four o'clock sometimes be able to spend two or three hours with the family and then then have to go to bed. And you just waited for the weekends to get there. But we made it work. Uh, and uh, it, it, I was blessed with working from home. What can I say? I and mean, it's, it's been, it has been quite a blessing. I got to see my family again and I got to see my, watch my kids grow up. So it's, it's been a blessing. That sounds very cool. I appreciate it. Let's talk. Why did you decide to write a book and why did you pick Papa John Phillips. <laughs> I was I at the Catholic Channel back in 2015. Pope Francis was coming to town. Um, you might remember hearing about that. It, it was his first papal trip to the United States. It was an enormous thing. It was it, and Sirius XM was all over it. They gave us like this great funding for the channel, and we were able to bring in some special hosts. And the program director at the time had asked me to. She she. I had put some special programming together for when the Pope was going to Israel because it was like the first time a Pope had been to Israel or it had been a while. And I had some old records of this of Pope Paul VI papal visit in the 60s. Right. That was the first time a Pope had been to Israel like ever. Which is hard since St. Peter, which is hard to believe. But uh, so she recognized that I had a historical thing. I liked history. And then I and I told a good story. So she had commissioned me to write and produce and direct a documentary on the life of Pope Francis. So it ended up being a two parter. And it got, it was so well received. And so she asked, they, she ended up leaving. And the program director who took her place asked me to keep doing a few. So I did a few more. And I was like, you didn't get paid anything extra for it. So I was like, yeah, I'm tired of doing these for free. I want to do something for myself. So big music lover and a, and a voracious reader. And I love reading, especially about music that I love from the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, even into the 80s. And so I was looking for a subject that I wanted to write about. And that's just something you didn't let me think. Neil Young, there's 800 books about Neil Young. There's tons of books about Bruce Springsteen. So I was like, it's something that's a little different. So I was reading a book about Gene Clark of the birds and I was in a folk rock mood. I'd written, I'd read some about Dylan and I was like, I'd like to read about John Phillips, Papa John. So I started shopping around for books on Amazon and couldn't really find anything. He had an autobiography that came out in 1986, out of, long out of print. Mama Michelle Phillips had a, an autobiography that's funny. They've had an acrimonious relationship. And then in the mid-80s, they both put out competing autobiographies the same year. So that both of them were long out of print. There was a Mama Cass book. And, and I like Mama Cass, but I, I want to read about John because John was the writer and the arranger. He was the brains behind the mamas and the papas. So I ended up getting his autobiography. And I was like, a lot has happened since then. He's passed away. It's accusations by Mackenzie Phillips and a lot. So I started writing an autobiography on John Phillips. And then I just got so overtaken by the story of the mamas and the papas. The four of them, the four of them have interesting stories separately and together. And so I, after a while, I just, I got about 20 chapters in. I was like, this should just be a mama's and the papa's biography, or else this is just going to be 50 chapters long on John Phillips. That's the, that's the story of how I, how I came to write about him. Them, I should say. Yeah. So I, as I said, I'm making my way through the book. It's very well done. I've Thank really you. enjoyed it. What I was just the little taste of it, I am also watching Daisy Jones and the Six on right. Amazon. And a lot of people say that Fleetwood Mac in the 70s. Right, yeah. But I think you there's also shades of the Mamas and the Papas on there a little bit, isn't there? The dynamics. I haven't seen that show, but I can believe it for sure because yeah. the elements that made Fleetwood Mac a, a boiling pot, yeah. <laughs> are the same ones, relationships, affairs emotions yeah. just that whole interplay unrequited love those elements are the mamas and the papas did it first so i could foresee i absolutely see that some of it was probably based on that do you it when you're describing john 
I, I thought of Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. That is one of my musical heroes. He was before I was obsessed with Bruce. I was obsessed with Brian. Yeah, I, I was lucky enough to talk to Peter Ames Carlin about his Brian biography and David Leaf. And so, it. Do you see the comparisons? Oh, for sure. First of all, let me just say Peter Ames Carlin is a great writer and really a source of inspiration. I love his writing style and I copied it. I love narrative nonfiction. And I actually read Homeward Bound. I read the Brian book, but he also did one on Paul Simon that I, that was just absolutely profound. And that's really what led me to start writing. It's on my to-do <clears throat> list. I've I obviously read Bruce right. and then I love Brian. And so I was like, oh man, I've got to read this Paul Simon one too. Oh, it's, yeah. yeah, you won't be disappointed. But yeah, St. John is very, I would say he's very much like Brian Wilson, but he's, the difference is he's less proficient than Brian Wilson. Brian Wilson, like Bruce, is a proficient songwriter, at least back then, or a songwriter, musician. He's always writing. He's always creating. John, but in terms of the ear and the way they arranged and the music that they were attracted, because both of them grew up Brian Wilson was a four freshman guy and John Phillips was a high lows guy. Those were both for any listeners listen, or people watching this or listening to this. Those are, are two vocal quartets from the 1950s that when you listen to the four freshmen, you feel like you're listening to the Beach Boys. It's, you really that's do. What, you know, yeah. And it's just, it's the sound is so, so similar. I forget the guy's name who was in the four freshmen who had that high that high lilt to his voice, but yeah. that Brian copied so well. But yeah, he they were both into that and they were into that more than they were in, into anything. So that really influenced how their approach to rock and roll. Now their rock and roll doesn't sound like middle of the road standards, Our Love is Here to Stay and the, all the other songs that, that the from that bygone era. But they their harmony, it lent the rock and roll lends itself to just about everything, and they, it lent to that harmony, and they were able to just make that fit in the rock and roll idiom. For the Beach Boys, it would be that early '60s doo-wop. That's how it started for them: doo-wop and rhythm and blues and Buddy Holly and all that stuff that was big then. And that carried over in with the Phil Spector Wall of Sound. And then for for the Mamas and the Papas, for John, it was right into that folk. Uh, he was able to translate that into folk music and then carry that over and put folk rhythms into rock and roll, which is what gave us the birds did. That's what gave us Mr. Tambourine Man, the Love and Spoonful, the Mamas and the Papas, Barry Maguire, and so many great acts from the mid 60s. A <clears throat> couple of things I want to go into. So what what are some of the things that surprised you after your research that you were, we've often, there's been a lot of stories about him and the turmoil of that group and then losing Mama Cass and all this stuff. But what are some things that surprised you when you started doing your research? Just how deep their story was. The one thing that just is just how this hasn't been committed to print, this book. There's been a couple documentaries about the Mamas and the Papas, like I, the books I mentioned before, there's really only been one biography on the Mamas and the Papas, and it's less than 200 pages long, and it's long out of print, and there's an oral history. So th- th- that's a, it surprised me that not too many people had, re- had, nobody had really thought to write the stories of the Mamas and the Papas. I think really the it coincides it just the how fame really affected that group in a very negative way. The secret sauce for John was his relationship with his wife, Michelle. She was such an incredible songwriting muse, maybe one of the greatest ever, like right up there with Patty Boyd and Yoko Ono. <laughs> she inspired Monday, Monday. She inspired Go Where You Want to Go. She inspired California Dreamin'. And so many of his hit songs, any song that has to deal with the conflict between men and women, something that happened in their lives. And just how that just dried up. And it naturally dried up because that can only go on for so long. At some point, you're just going to move on and say, I can't deal with this person anymore, which they both did. And also, and that it just affected them. They didn't even really tour. I think in their history, they did maybe 50 live shows, 51, 52 live shows. And they really set the template for the pampered artist on the road, riders and things like that. And we only stay at 
five-star hotels and we only travel by Learjet yeah. and things like that. And which really, and I think rested on his laurels. I think he, he went through the whole, he paid his dues with his folk bands, the journeyman and the new journeyman. And we, I think he just thought his rock and roll, Hey man, I, you make a lot of money with this pu- music publishing stuff. You don't have to work so hard. Yeah. When the, op- the opposite is true. You really have, look at Bruce. Bruce yeah. is a relentless tourer. He is, he's, pro- he's probably the, the most prolific songwriters, as I said, and he's just a relentless tourer and he's a relentless rehearser. Uh, if that's a word, no, I <laughs> you know, know he rehearses yeah. a lot and it affects the people around him and where the mamas and the papas, it was just, it was quite the opposite. It was just with that attitude, you were just doomed to fail. One of the things that struck me through the book so far, and this is, I, I don't want to sound judgmental, but this will sound judgmental, is that it it appears John was very calculating about how to find success in the music business. Yeah. And versus it, it appears that Brian, maybe not so much, Bruce definitely talks about in his autobiography that he wanted to be discovered, mm-hmm. but it was all about the music. That right. was it. And John, it gets a feeling like this is, I, wanna, I want to be successful to make money. Right. Not necessarily, I have a muse that I need to share. Is, yeah, that, yeah. is that unfair of me? No, I don't think it's unfair. I think he loves making music and he had an incredible ear for arrangements and melodies. And the thing you always hear about John is he could take five people. He could take you and let's say you, me and John are sitting here and there's, okay. let's just say another host at your thing. He'll find strengths in our singing wow. and arrange it so that we can sound like a great singing group. He did it all the time. And when he got people like Denny Doherty and Cass Elliott, to sing and then and he and michelle were not michelle was not a very good singer she wasn't a terrible singer but she was right you listen to her solo album you'll see why she never really had solo success and john was an adequate singer he was good but he wasn't a very strong singer but they compliment with his method of stacking vocals and arranging people he could just it was just it it with the with Denny with great singers, he was able to make an incredible sound, and we witness it with the mamas, the recordings of the mamas and the papas, which is so great. But he was very calculating, and he was incredibly. He had a, a, a large IQ. He was a very smart guy. He was a terrible student because he was bored very easily and didn't want to be there. And he was a smart kid. I think he was a, he was so far out in front of a lot of. Students said he was behind them and worked against him academically. But when he found where his niche was, which was in music, he excelled at a very rapid pace. Yeah, I in the book, you talk about him discovering a guitar and learning the chords and working just through easy chords to harder chords to very difficult chords and mm-hmm. pushing himself. You do. This is one of those things you, we were just talking about alternate worlds. You wonder if he had some of us are lucky enough to get teachers that inspire us that that if someone had seen that potential and had tried to push him in a different way you wonder what could have happened yeah is why do you think there hasn't been a lot of books about him and why do you think he is not placed in that shelf of musical icons or influences that's a good question i've asked that myself i obviously the easy answer is because he's a very polarizing figure especially in 2009 his daughter Mackenzie accused him this is eight years after he had passed away of of raping her on her wedding night when she was 20 and as that's pretty heinous and that's that, that works again but i'm also not in the I'm not of the belief that because somebody did something bad, we can't ever talk about them, especially if it if what they did bad happened years and years after, like the Mamas and the Papas. They were a mid six mid to late 60s group. This allegedly happened in 1979, and we didn't find out about it until 30 years after that, yeah. or it wasn't revealed. So I think that's part of the reason. I think a lot of writers and 
publishing companies can be very myopic in their thinking. I think Mamas and the Papas is one of those groups that kind of fell in the cracks. There's so many books about the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan. Those are the standard bearers of that era. And rightfully, I have tons of books on all those guys myself, and I really enjoy them. But groups like the Birds and the Love and Spoonful, that's another group that hasn't been written about. And I write about them a lot in this book. I tell their story as it coincides because, you know, anybody who's listened to Creaky Alley by the Mamas and the Papas, you know, all the characters, John Sebastian and Barry Maguire and Roger McGuinn and, and all the folks from the Mamas and the Papas. So I think they just fell through the cracks. The Monterey Pop Festival was great. And it was something that John Phillips organized. That was his brainchild or somebody handed him the idea and he just took it and ran like he did with his music and made it into what it is. But I also think it was their undoing because it really bought brought what was going on at the cutting edge of rock and roll at that time, which would have been the Jimi Hendrix experience, the Who, Buffalo Springfield. It really brought a lot of that to the fore. And then any group after that wore matching outfits or sang in harmony were passe. It, the Monterey Pop Festival was great for rock and roll. It was bad. It was bad for groups like the Beach Boys and the Four Seasons and the Mamas and the Papas. They were a lot of them were thought instantaneously square, you know, in the, after the summer of love. And they all they, the Beach Boys managed to come back. The Four Seasons managed to come back, but the Mamas and the Papas just they splintered a year later and never really came back. And then Mama Cass dies in 1974, and that's all she wrote. Without Mama Cass, there's no Mamas and the Papas, even though they tried. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It is the one of my favorite podcasts is Andrew Hickey's A History of Rock and Roll and 500 Songs. And he ta- has talked about the Monterey pop and the how the San Francisco music scene and the L.A. scene and these mm-hmm. different going on. That's interesting. I get into that in the book, too, when you get to that point, because that was a major coup was to get those San Francisco groups to come and play. And that was not easy. And they didn't trust John Phillips. They didn't trust Lou Adler. You know, and it took it took Paul Simon to go up there and and to bring them all in. Yes, it's funny that you mentioned that because that is a big part of the book. You'll see that later on when you get there. Good. Is. I'll make a joke and then I'll ask you seriously. Okay. Besides your child's college fund, what <laughs> are you hoping to for people to get out of the book? And what were you hoping to achieve with the book? Just a great story, a great rock and roll story of ooh, relationships and friendships. And it's a cautionary tale in a lot of ways. This these this happened to these four tight singers but it can happen to you too but and really it's a great rock and roll story that hasn't really it's been told there's a song in it but this is like creaky alley times a hundred it's gonna Mm -hmm. it's really gonna open up a great story it's what i really wanted to do was tell the story of the first 20 years or 15 years of rock and roll through the mamas and the papas because they all grew up were children of the 50s john was a little bit older than all of them he was 19 by the time rock and roll was kicking off with Elvis in 56 he was 21 years old and all the rest are a little bit younger than him but it that's when they all decided to become singers and John had his first vocal quartet in 1959 and they recorded for Decca Records and then it takes you through into that folk era of the early 1960s 1960 to 64 thereabouts and then into folk rock and what was going on British invasion Motown how the Beatles just Folk music was going looked like it was going really well, and then the Beatles just came and just t- took a hatchet to it. And yeah. the next thing you know, every everybody started trading in their Martins and for Rickenbackers and Gretches, and started forming and taking what they had learned from folk music, which was very important. And it's very just you look at rock and roll before the Birds, the Beatles, and the Birds came and then you look at it afterwards it was it really lent a level of sophistication to rock and roll which is really what john phillips was going for with the monterey pop festival he wanted to elevate rock and roll music which in 1967 was still looked down upon by the adult set but they still thought it was just caterwauling and a phase and a fad and it'll end and he wanted to lift it up to the respectability of folk music and jazz music and i think he succeeded so I think people are going to get just so and then we get into that into the late 60s with the classic rock with Jimi Hendrix and the Who and the Rolling Stones and all that good stuff. And I think people are just going to get a really just a real great trip of of what that was was all about. 
All right, so all the leaves are brown, how the mamas and papas came together and broke apart. It is going to be available on June 1st, 2023. We're recording this in April, but I'm going to release it then. It is currently available for pre-order on Amazon, both on a hardcover and Kindle. I'm sure it's available in other venues as well. Wherever fine books are sold, as they say. Yes. What's next for you? I'm working on a book about Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson. That's my that is my next project. They have an incredible story of transforming music themselves. This little thing called the Outlaw Country Movement in the early 70s, but there's a lot that came before that. And I want to tell their story of really struggling in the music business in 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 the country music field in the in from the late 50s throughout the entire decade of the 60s and into the early 70s. And then just uh, this bond they formed through their misery together in Nashville and how that created the outlaw country music and gave us things like Redheaded Stranger and Honky Tonk Heroes. And then just the, the focus on their friendship and how that went up until Waylon died in 2002. I- Willie was in the Ken Burns documentary, Country Music, and told some amazing stories. And oh, yeah, I'm in. I love that. I uh, he's <laughs> Willie's going on, and he he's unstoppable. He is unstoppable. And <laughs> I always think of him. The first time, my dad was listening to him, and one of his buddies, my dad was in the military, and the guy said. Boy, he sure talks a good song, doesn't he? And I <laughs> said, does. I said that's a good that's a good explanation of Willie Nelson's music as ever. Pretty good album title. Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, that is great. Any final thoughts? Anything I should have asked you that I didn't before I get um, to the Barry question? <laughs> <laughs> you asked. You gave me some questions, and I what's one thing that stuck out was what spoke to me and about Bruce's music, and there's. Yeah. It's hard to pin down, but there's just so much to love about Bruce's music. There's yet the early part with all the characters in his songs, and then there's just so much energy to his music. And it really talking about the mid '60s with the Mamas and the Papas and all that stuff. There's you, you listen to some of Bruce's albums; they sound like they could fit like right into 1966. Like I had a, like I said, my father-in-law. He's always been critical of anything after Born to Run. He would say the same thing about Born in the USA. I don't get it. I don't understand what people... I was like, what if that album was Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, Born in the USA? And he stopped and thought for a second. You make a good point. There's just... There's energy. There's earthiness. Like we just talking about Willie and Waylon. A lot of people... Bruce has a country bent to his music too. It's just... There's a lot of things to love. I'm glad that there are people like you out there talking with people about Bruce Springsteen keeping his music going because we're as sad as it is we're getting near the end of the ride here I hope Bruce has another 20 years in him but he's 73 now he's my dad's age I can't imagine my dad doing anything like this yeah I there are a few fans that were unhappy that he had done this covers album this soul covers album I love it (laughs) I did too and I said Sign me up right now. I want him to do a 60s doo-wop cover album. I want him to do yeah, a, cover, a cover album. For sure. I want him yeah. to do a gospel cover album. And I yeah, just do could. disco. Oh, yeah. I don't <laughs> care. But I, because when I've heard artists, I think Johnny Cash doing Highway Patrolman is arguably better than Bruce's version. Atlantic City, you've heard plenty of people do that version. Tougher than the rest. It is there. A lot of his music has that where you could throw in a couple of, throw in a little more of Susie's fiddles and throw in a banjo and you've got a pretty cool country song. Yeah. He he turned Mansion on the Hill into a country song, his live version. So yeah, Yeah. anything's possible. (laughs) Have you gotten to see him on this tour? I have not. I've only seen Bruce three times in my life, believe okay. it or not, and which is ridiculous by Bruce, Bruce Superfan, of which I consider myself a stat. But yeah. I saw him twice. With The first two times I saw him were with the other band. Yeah. So that was jaded my experience. And then I became, then I was a, a starving college student. Then I was a starving professional and then a starving yeah. husband and father. So I, didn't, yeah. I finally got to see him with the E Street Band in 2016 on the River Tour. And it was just really, it checked, checked the box. And I was so happy to just see him with the boys. 
were you not working for Sirius when they were doing Apollo Theater? I was, but again, I was doing the overnight show. Okay, so, so there was just no way that was okay. happening. To me. <laughs> okay. But I did get to see him at Sirius XM. I used to, his son Evan worked there for a couple of years. Looked yeah. exactly like him. You would see him in the hall. It's Bruce, nineteen seventy eight. Wow. Like, okay. yeah. Look at this. It's like young Bruce is here. Oh, but I did, see, and he would come in and visit his son a lot. I never saw him then, but I did see him. When the when he released the Darkness box set, I saw him there. But he and I saw him surround. But he was surrounded by Sirius XM executives, and I just like I'm not even gonna yeah, try exactly. going here. Yes. <laughs> but it was just yeah. cool to be within the same within arm's distance of him. Yeah, Jim Rotolo and I've exchanged, and he has said that he would be glad to be on the show, but he's always got other things going on. Yeah, he's a busy uh, guy. Yeah, he is a very busy guy. That is awesome. I will have to tell my wife because she at times will turn to the Catholic Channel. And so I'll let her know I got to talk to some of the people behind the scenes on that. There you go. Yeah, (laughs) very nice. All right. For those of you who are checking this out, I hope you go buy the book. Are you going to, do you know if you're going to be doing any signings? I know it's a little bit early yet. Yeah, we will definitely be doing some. I'm not sure when they're going to be, but I okay. have spoken with my publicity team and they definitely want me to do it. I'm very excited to do it. Good. If you want to, let's definitely, we will stay in touch. For and sure. And then we'll, when we get closer, I can include a link to where you're going to promote this. Like I said, I'm going to edit this and keep it. And then I'm worried if I drop it now that people may not remember. So I want to get closer to publishing the good. All right, Scott, Jay Armstrong is a retired high school English teacher. And when he was teaching, he would give his students the lyrics to Thunder Road. Okay. They would read them. They would study them. They would talk about the imagery that Bruce is using. They would compare it to Robert Frost, The Road Not Taken and other American poems. And then at the end of the two days, he would ask his class, does Mary get in the car? So Scott, that is your question. Does Mary (laughs) get in the car at the end of Thunder Road? It's funny because I've never, ever really thought of that. I just assumed, yes, yes, she does. How does a woman hear a guy pour his heart out like that and just leave it bleeding on the floor and and step all over it? Of course she gets in the car. I don't know if she stayed in the car. I think maybe at some point the ride ended, uh, especially if we're talking about the two love-starved teenagers from New Jersey in the 1970s. But yeah, I think so. It's uh, just driving off into the night down that that dirty, dusty beach road, whatever you want. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Yeah, I believe she does, but I don't know that she stayed. I think that is an excellent answer. I've been told that a couple of times. They said yes, but when he stops to get cigarettes, she goes, what the hell am I doing? (laughs) Yeah. Yes. Others have said that she stays in the car. They drive to California and uh, Moonlight Motel is him mourning her. Oh, Which, interesting. If, if you listen to Moonlight Motel with that perspective, it gives it a whole nother thought. Great album that Western yeah. started. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> Scott, thank you. This was great. I am loving the hell out of the book. I think it's well written. I think it's an interesting time in American music history. I think it's an interesting group that I'm like one of those who are like, oh, yeah, them. Oh, yeah, I like that song. Oh, yeah, I like that song. And then when yeah. you realize that it's so I'm looking forward to finishing it. And I definitely want to have you back on, especially if when Bruce comes back, if you try to figure out a way to see him on the second leg, I'd love to have you in talk about this, the new tour and put me down when you're talking Whaley and Willie. I got to have you on again. Oh, for sure. I will keep you in mind. Maybe we'll make you the first interview again. Uh, that would be nice. <laughs> if someone wants to reach you, what's the best way? I have a website, scottsheaauthor.com. Shea is spelled S-H-E-A and Scott with two T's. Social media, website, Twitter, at Scott Shea Author, Scott Shea Author on Facebook, and at Scott Shea Author on Instagram. All right. I will include all of those on the podcast notes. Thank you, my friend. This was a blast. I appreciate it. Hang tight. Listeners, I'm always looking for feedback. So please send me an email, setlessingbruce at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. You can find me on Twitter at setlessingbruce. Go to iTunes, rate and review the podcast. It's how people find us. 
But for now, thank you, Scott. Thank you, listeners. Thank you. Be safe, be kind, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye. There we go. Another episode. I'm about to go through a couple of things where you can reach me and give me feedback. Um, so if you want to skip this, I understand. But I do hope you check it out every once in a while. I'm available on Twitter at Jesse Jackson DFW. The show is available at SetLustingBruce. You can send me an email, setlustingbruce at gmail.com. You can send me a voicemail at 469-249-2442. I am currently doing a few other podcasts, perfectly good podcast, John Hyatt from A to Z, where Sylvan Groth and I discuss every John Hyatt song in alphabetical order. My Babylon 5 podcast is Last Best Hope for Conversation, where Lou, Karen, and I discuss every episode of Babylon 5 in chronological order. I still am doing Next Stop Everywhere, the Doctor Who podcast with my brother in time, Charles Skaggs. And then finally, How Many Podcasts, the only podcast on the internet that counts, where my buddies and I discuss pop culture. You can go to our Patreon page and support the podcast for as little as a dollar a month. You can go to our Facebook page, like, and please, please go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast and leave a five-star rating and review for all of the podcasts that I'm doing. It's okay if you don't listen to them, but if you subscribe and rate, it really will make my day better. Thank you, and I will talk to you soon. You just heard the fun talking, hard rocking, music loving, album ranking, fan thinking, joy spreading, lyric reading, story sharing podcast that is the one, the only, Set Listening Bruce. The theme for Set Listening Bruce was written by David Rosen, used by permission. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.